0: I'm going to begin this afternoon with one of those things that professors do every now and then, and it doesn't always make them popular. I will begin with a pop quiz. I knew you'd like that. Who invited this guy to come back as frequently as he does? A pop quiz for you. And you can follow through. It's ten questions. They're all true or false questions. You can follow through. Well, I don't think they'll be too hard. Let's see how we do. The pop quiz is on one particular subject that I'd like to cover with you this afternoon. Question number one, true or false? The law of Moses is abolished. True or false? You can jot it down in your memory or whatever. Question number 2. Christians may disregard the law of Moses. Is that true or is it false? Number 3, again a true false question. The law of Moses came from Moses and not from God. The law of Moses came from Moses and not from God. True or false? Some of this is too easy. I need to up these up the uh, the uh, the quality of these questions. They're too easy. If you ever come to FI for a year, don't worry, I give much harder questions there. (laughs) That's question number three. The law of Moses came from Moses and not from God. Question number four. The law of Moses is entirely physical. Entirely physical. Number five. The law of Moses consists of a set of ceremonial laws only. Only. That's an important word there. The law of Moses is a set of ceremonial laws only. That's number five. Number six. This, this is an easy one. The law of Moses is never quoted in the New Testament. Okay, if you get that one wrong, you need to go home and study some more, do some more Bible study. <laughs> the law of Moses is never quoted in the New Testament. Okay, that's number six. Number seven. Jesus never quoted the law of Moses as having authority. True or false? Jesus never quoted the law of Moses as having authority. True or false? These are too easy, aren't they? <laughs> Wynne and Crystal. Crystal is looking at me and say, as if to say the questions that you gave at uh, FI were much harder than this. Number eight. The Apostle Paul never quoted Moses. True or false? The Apostle Paul never quoted Moses. Is that true? The Apostle Paul alleged to be the Apostle, the anti-law apostle in the New Testament. Number nine, the law of Moses was nailed to the cross. True or false? The law of Moses was nailed to the cross. And number ten, much too easy, these questions. I should set you a writing assignment after all of this. Number ten, the law of Moses is obsolete. The law of Moses is obsolete. True or false? Now, I'm guessing most of you know the right answers. All ten of them are false or at the very least, overstatements, at the very least. Uh, although, you know, from time to time, people have a little difficulty with this subject. I was researching this subject of the law of Moses, and uh, in the book of Galatians, and that's not the subject for the sermon this afternoon, <clears throat> the book of Galatians, which is a much misunderstood book of the New Testament, but because it allegedly does away with the law, but in the book of uh, Galatians, the Apostle Paul quotes the law of Moses four times, and he has another five quotations from other places in the Old Testament in that one book. In fact, it's surprising. Do a study sometime and look how many times, because your Bible will tell you where he's quoting from the Old Testament. How many times does the New Testament quote the Old Testament? I think in God's church we understand that the Bible is a very inter-test- a very intertextual book, heavily intertextual. So these numbers are a little bit subjective, because there are different estimates as to how many times the New Testament quotes the Old. According to one source, Christianity.StackExchange.com, I don't even know who publishes that one, but they say there are 302 direct quotations, 493 allusions, and a further 138 possible allusions for a total of 933 933 uh, allusions and quotations according to that source Uh, Wikipedia now Wikipedia we know is always the last word on everything Uh, I'm told they don't allow students to quote Wikipedia in their term papers in a lot of the colleges and universities now so um, I'm going to forfeit my A here according to Wikipedia there are 283 direct quotations in the New Testament out of the Old I think that actually might be a little bit on the low side um, lots of quotations, as I think we realize, we understand this. And if you go to the Internet and you look at this subject, it is frankly lots of chaff and little wheat. If you look at this question, what about the law of Moses? Should Christians give any heed to it? Is it important? Is it in effect? In what, in, 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 if so, in what way is it in effect? Uh, I remember a number of years ago when I lived in Pasadena, California, in an apartment in Pasadena, and it was uh, Saturday morning, and there was a knock on the door. And you know these people in their, in their ties and carrying the Bibles underneath their arms and so on. It was Saturday morning. Some of you had the same experience. Maybe you didn't open the door for them. I did. And they came to the door, very pleasant people. Uh, and, well, we're Bible students, and we'd like to study the Bible with you and so on. I said, well, if you're Bible students, you should know what day of the week it is. The Sabbath. So I said to them, do you keep the Sabbath? Uh, they said to me, no, we don't. We don't keep the law of Moses. I said, the Sabbath is not the law of Moses, it's one of the Ten Commandments. They paused for a second and said, what church do you go to? <laughs> I think somebody had primed them, actually. You know, you're going to run into a lot of Worldwide Church of God people in this area. Very nice people, but they didn't seem to... I don't know how much of an understanding they had of that particular subject. Now, even in God's church, questions on this come up from time to time. We cover this uh, in at Foundation Institute. Of course, the Law of Moses is a lot of scripture. And when we read it, it's not always an easy matter to figure out, what does it say to us? We are distanced geographically. We're distanced historically. We're distanced culturally from the time that God gave Laws, lots of them, through Moses back in the 15th century B.C., 15th century B.C. And uh, like I say, questions even come up in the church from time to time. Let's begin in the New Testament, and we're going to go back and forth a little bit. Let's begin in Second Timothy chapter 3. Second Timothy chapter 3, and I think you may recognize and anticipate where I'm going here. Second Timothy chapter 3. And verses 16 and 17, this is the famous declaration about uh, the inspiration of the Bible. Second Timothy 3, verse 16, Paul wrote to Timothy, All scripture, all scripture is, is given by inspiration of God. God-breathed is what it says in the Greek. All scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. We could comment a lot about all of that. It's interesting how Paul points to the Word of God and talks about its purpose. That the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. A very famous couple of verses, and of course, as we understand... When Paul wrote this to Timothy, and he referred to all Scripture, of course, primarily, he was talking about what we have as the first two-thirds of the Bible, the Hebrew portion of the Scriptures. Now, some say, and I think it's true, by the way, that perhaps the canonization of the New Testament had begun by the time Paul wrote this to Timothy. Some say that maybe Luke's Gospel had actually begun to be accepted in the churches, and had begun to be regarded as Scripture with a capital S as well, and I think That's probably true. Nevertheless, the statement here refers primarily to the Hebrew Scriptures, what we refer to as the Old Testament. And in Matthew chapter 4, and this is very interesting. Now, you know, very likely know what is in Matthew chapter 4, the temptation of Jesus by Satan the devil. Matthew chapter 4, and... um, Matthew 4 and verse 3. Let's read verse 3. Matthew 4, verse 3. When the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. And he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Now, um, you've got uh, a... uh, a Bible with intertestamental references. And it's interesting here, this was quite a push on the part of Satan the devil to get Jesus Christ the Savior to essentially give up his role in God's plan. And the fascinating thing now, of course, look look at Matthew 4, verse 4, and you've probably got the Old Testament reference there. Deuteronomy 8 and verse 3. What's interesting about this whole chapter is that when this Theological discussion took place. It was more than that. It was a very serious attack by the adversary against the Savior. Uh, and uh, as this took place, as you read through it, Jesus, in fact, quotes the law of Moses three times. It's three times all three of the quotations as he rebuts the arguments from Satan the devil. All three come out of the law of Moses. Um He takes him up on the pinnacle of the temple. If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. Verse 6, for it is written. And Satan quotes one of the Psalms. He quotes it out of context, of course. And then in verse 7, Jesus again quotes from the book of Deuteronomy. You shall not tempt the Lord your God. And then the trump card, so to speak. All these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan. It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you, you shall serve. All three of these rebuttals from Jesus are actually out of the book of Deuteronomy. Isn't that interesting? Three times he uses the law of Moses to rebut the arguments of Satan the devil. All right. So we're talking about the law of Moses. And we're going to take a look at some of, the, uh, some of the scriptures in the Law of Moses this afternoon and ask ourselves, okay, what does this mean for me, for you? We are Christians. This is the 21st century. We live in the United States of America. We're geographically distanced. We're historically distanced. We're culturally distanced from the Law of Moses. How are we to read it? What does it mean for us? Many churches will say simply... The Ten Commandments are, in effect, the Law of Moses is abolished. I'm told that even the Seventh-day Adventists take a position similar to that. In God's Church, our position is a little bit different, but what is our position? First of all, let's begin defining the Law of Moses in the context into which the Law of Moses came. The Law of Moses was an integral, integral part of what we refer to as the Old Covenant. Now, of course, when it was formed between God and Israel, uh, back at Mount Sinai, there was nothing old about it. It was actually quite new. You know, this was the first time that God had entered into a covenantal arrangement with an entire nation. Let's turn back there to Exodus 24. Exodus chapter 24, and verses 7 and 8. Because this is the... Theological context, so to speak, for the law of Moses. Exodus 24 is a very important chapter. Exodus 24 and verse 7. Then he, Moses, took the book of the covenant. That phrase, the book of the covenant, many uh, scholars believe that that's these four chapters, Exodus 21 through 24. I think they generally exclude Exodus 20, which is the Ten Commandments. The Book of the Covenant is often believed to be these four chapters. Now, of course, it wasn't a book. It was a scroll. We think of a book in like we have books, but it was on the form of a scroll. But he takes this document, the Book of Co- the Covenant, and he read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has said, we will do and be obedient. It's quite a commitment. It's a big commitment. Will do what God says. So they are in fact formally entering into a covenant type of relationship with God here. Verse 8. Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant. Behold is a very important word. Look, this because it was important what took place here. This is formalizing legally the agreement between God and Israel. The blood of the covenant which your Lord has made with you according to all these words. Covenants are sealed with blood. So the sprinkling of the blood there formalizes it. A covenant is a solemn agreement between two parties, in which party A says, I will do this, and party B says, I will do this. And then we enter into a covenant. Most of us have entered into covenant Have you ever looked at the wording of your uh, mortgage documents? I think it actually uses the term covenant. In the legal documents, in your your mortgage, probably too much small print for you and for me. Even if you buy a car, you know, and you uh, take make, take it on on payments, they often use the word covenant. It's a it's an agreement. Here we've got an agreement between God and Israel. And we refer to it as the Old Covenant. Now, the interesting thing about it, and the thing that actually makes it a little bit difficult even to cover this particular subject, is that the the Old Covenant, with its law of Moses, which it encompasses, is designed to cover everything. It's a body of laws that are designed to cover everything. Everything, in principle, for a physical nation. Just about everything. And it's a big body of laws, isn't it? We've read them. There are laws of warfare. There are laws of property rights and boundaries. There are laws about marriage and the family. There are laws of basic hygiene. There are laws of money. Um, Interesting laws. Laws about tithing. Laws about how to keep the Sabbath. Laws about farm animals. Holy days, of course. It's interesting that the uh, holy days section in the Law of Moses is given from God Through the priests in the book of Leviticus, there's a reason for that, of course. There is, of course, then ceremonies, washings, and animal sacrifices. And when people talk about the law of Moses, they often think first about the ceremonies and the washings and the animal sacrifices. And then they make, sometimes I've seen overgeneralized statements about the law of Moses. The ceremonies and the washings and the animal sacrifices are not the totality of the law of Moses. There's a whole lot more to it than that. Now, even the ceremonies and the washings and the animal sacrifices, even that is a section of the Bible that we can learn from. We perhaps don't turn to that quite as readily as we turn to, you know, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that we heard about in the sermonette, some of these uh, New Testament scriptures. But there are even things in all of these laws about the animals that God would accept that uh, we can learn from, even though we know that portion really doesn't apply to us in a direct and practical manner. Let's put it that way. Laws for the priesthood. How the priesthood was to conduct itself. And, of course, the New Testament refers to the church as a royal priesthood. So even there, it's interesting, and I think we understand this, when we read all of it, there's something we can glean from everything. In principle, everything. All tailored for a physical nation. This is a physical nation that God deals with. Now, we are the Church of God, and we are a spiritual nation. The assumption is that we work a little differently. But we'll come to that in a minute. I shouldn't get ahead of myself. Um, I want to show you something here. I think this is interesting. Turn with me to Genesis 26 and verse 5, if you would, please. Genesis 26 and verse 5. I think one of the most wonderful aspects of the understanding of God and his plan and his will that we have in the Church of God, and we've understood this for many, many decades, concerns the laws that God gave in the various covenants. And you and I understand, I think we do, that there is a consistency... In the legal content of the covenants, beginning with the patriarchal covenants, down through the covenant, entered into Mount Sinai, down to the covenant that you and I are under, the new covenant, and the essence, the heart, the backbone of the laws of God remain the same. Other Christian traditions don't fully understand this, and therefore they grapple with questions and come up with wrong conclusions. Um, Genesis 26, verse 5. This is a comment about Abraham. Abraham is referred to as the father of the faithful in the New Testament. Genesis 26 and verse 5. Here is God speaking to Isaac, Abraham's son. And we'll interrupt the context here because it's an interesting verse. Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. Now, there's a lot there we could stop and comment on each one of these Hebrew words, which is not my purpose in the sermon this afternoon. But the use of the words is interesting. Obviously, what's being, what we're being told here is Abraham kept God's laws. You know, people read the book of Genesis and say, there's no evidence that Abraham uh, was a Sabbath keeper. Well, we beg to differ. It says that Abraham kept God's laws. We're not given all of the details. Did he understand every little bit of it, as it was later given to uh, Israel through Moses, all of the laws that had to do with that? After all, Abraham was the head of a family, a clan. And uh, later on, it's given to a nation. But we're told quite plainly that Abraham... Kept God's laws. Now, let's go over to Deuteronomy 11 and verse 1. Deuteronomy chapter 11 and verse 1. I learned this years after I came into the church. Deuteronomy 11 and verse 1. Deuteronomy 11 and verse 1. This is after the entire package is given. Israel has come to receive all of the laws, of course, and the book of Deuteronomy is sort of a recap. Deuteronomy repeats a lot of what's in the book of Exodus and gives a slightly different emphasis here and there. But in Deuteronomy 11 and verse 1, uh, God says to Israel through Moses, Therefore you shall love the Lord your God and keep his charge, his statutes, his judgments, and his commandments always. Guess what? The wording in the Hebrew is almost identical to the wording that is used to describe Abraham's obedience back in Genesis 26. It's the same words. It's the same words. In other words, God made it known to Abraham, the father of the faithful. He told him his will, expressed in his law. And then we come down to the event of Mount Sinai when the Ten Commandments are given. And then there are a lot of other laws that come along as well. And by pretty plain biblical declaration what abraham received and had to live according to is essentially the same as what gave god gave to ancient israel it's an interesting correspondence now let's come down to let's anticipate a little bit the subject of the church because of course the church is constituted differently we're not a physical nation <coughs> We are all drawn from different nationalities, different uh, parts of the world, different racial groups. But we are connected, as we heard in the sermonette, we're connected and made one in one spirit. But the fact that we're a spiritual group of people leads us to the assumption that we react a little bit differently. We want to do what's right before God. With Israel, it was sort of carrot and stick very often. You know, you get the carrots dangled in front of you and you get the stick if you misbehave, right? But we, presumably, if we really belong here, we are a spiritual nation and therefore our motivation is to do what's right in God's sight. Nevertheless, to learn what's right in God's sight, we need instruction. All right, let's go forward. Now, let's go back, actually. We've still got our Bibles open at Deuteronomy. Let's go back to Exodus chapter 20. This was the distinction that the JWs didn't understand all those years ago when they came and knocked on my door on a Saturday morning. Exodus 20, verse 1, this, of course, is the Ten Commandments, but the most obvious distinction between the Ten Commandments and the laws of Moses is that the Ten Commandments were unmediated. Exodus 20, verse 1 says, And God spoke all these words, saying... And I'm not going to read all the way through them. There's a lot there, obviously. I think uh, each one of those is sufficient for a sermon of them by itself. I was recently in Fredericksburg. uh took a few days and walking past a Catholic church there, and they've got a big stone uh Monument in front of the church, and I was reading the way the Catholics uh, read the ten Commandments the way the, the wording is quite different. Have you ever seen that in front of a Catholic church? they word it differently, especially the fourth commandment, but anyway that 's a bit off the subject exodus twenty one and verse uh, well exodus twenty twenty and verse nineteen Exodus twenty and verse nineteen then they said to Moses, You speak with us, and we will hear' But let not God speak with us, lest we die. They were scared. Well, because they were a physical nation. And they had their faults and their flaws. We do too, of course. But they were scared because they're in the presence of a righteous God, who is perfect in spiritual perfection, who is perfect, perfectly resplendent. And so they say, we don't want to hear any anymore. This is frightening us. And so the rest comes through Moses. The laws of Moses are mediated. Exodus 21, verse 1. Exodus 21, verse 1. Now, these are the judgments which you shall set before them. Judgments. uh, An interesting word there. It actually assumes that a kind of a judicial decision has been made. Now, of course, I think we know that the Ten Commandments are, are quoted all over the New Testament. That's an interesting study as well. Have you done a study on that recently? It's difficult to name a New Testament writer... Who didn't cite the Ten Commandments? In fact, I think it's impossible. Um, But, uh, or even, so a few of the books in the New Testament don't make direct reference to the Ten Commandments, but the Ten Commandments are all over the New Testament, of course. But here's the point so are the laws of Moses. So are the laws of Moses, lots and lots of them. Um, Going back in my notes here, uh, the law of Moses for purification, Luke 2, verse 22, cleansing of lepers. Matthew 8, verse 4. We're not going to follow up on each one of those. The laws of Moses are all over the New Testament as well. Um, And usually the laws of Moses take the following form. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the children of Israel and say to them. So in some cases it's, and the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, speak to the children of Israel and say to them. In some cases, it's, and the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the priests and say to them. And of course, there's something to be learned from all of it. There's always something there. But let's remember what happened in Exodus chapter 18, because this is an important key for understanding the law of Moses. In Exodus 18, actually just before the Ten Commandments are given, although no doubt Moses knew them, God made them known to Moses, he'd made them known to Uh, Abraham. In Exodus 18, Moses is sitting as judge. Apparently, he begins judging the things going on in the community as soon as the sun comes up. And you get the impression he's still busy as the sun goes down, and it simply gets too dark for him to adjudicate any of the causes that come up. You know, a physical nation has contentions among it. Hopefully, as a spiritual nation, we have a lot less of that, as we heard in the sermonette. But Moses is sitting as judge from daybreak till nightfall. And it's his Moabite father-in-law who comes to him and actually gives him a very good piece of advice. You're going to wear yourself out. What do you think you're doing here? You can't keep on doing all of this. You need some help. Exodus 18, verse 19. Exodus 18, verse 19. These are the words of uh, Jethro, his father-in-law. Listen now to my voice. I will give you counsel, and God will be with you. Stand before God for the people, so that you may bring the difficulties to God. Yes, you're a judge. Moses is in the position of a judge. And you shall teach them the statutes and the laws, and show them the way in which they must walk and the work that they must do. Now, here's here's where it gets interesting. Moreover, you shall select from all the people able men, such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness. Wow, if that isn't a description of New Testament Christian character, I don't know what is. And it's interesting, by the way, ten years ago, as this body of God's people, the Church of God, a worldwide association, was forming, we did uh, word studies on Exodus 18 and verse 21 to look at the meanings of all of these words and phrases, because obviously these are qualifications for leadership of God's people in New Testament times. Men of truth, we must be men and women of truth. Hating covetousness, you can't do what you do for money, and place such over them to be rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, and rulers of tens. So, in a way, we actually get a kind of a precedent for the legal arrangement that we have in uh, this nation today, where you have a supreme court and you have lower courts. Verse 22, let them judge the people at all times. It will be that every great matter they shall bring to you. The difficult matters. But every small matter, they themselves shall judge, so it will be easier for you. They will bear the burden with you. You're going to wear yourself out, Moses. You need some judges to assist you. Verse 23. If you do this thing, and God so commands you, then you will be able to endure, and all these people will go to their place in peace. So the point that I'm trying to get at here is that there's a system of judges that goes into place as part of the administrative apparatus for the law of Moses. Verse 25. Moses chose able men out of all Israel and made them heads over the people, rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, and rulers of tens. And presumably this stood, stood, stood them in good stead for much of the time as they came down as they're uh, moving through the desert and getting ready to move into their own uh, land as God gave them. And even when they came into the land, there is a system of judges that goes into place. Now that's important. Why? Well, because the judges of this physical nation could do certain things. Many of the laws as we read them impose penalties. Some of the penalties for violation of the law of Moses even rise to the level of capital punishment. If this happens in the nation, then this individual who did it is to be put to death. Now this, of course, is one of the keys for understanding the law of Moses. You know, we don't, we don't carry out the death penalty in the church. But where we read something in the law of Moses, and the law of Moses says if this happens, this is serious business, and it's got the death penalty on it. The judgments were to be made. The, uh, much of the law is do this. Don't allow that. The judges sometimes worked in cooperation with the priests. You know, the priests uh, examining houses for garments and mold, molds and so on. They also had a role, but they had a role together. It's interesting how you see, when you read through the Old Testament, you see the judges and the priests often working hand in hand and adjudicating some of these things that came up within the nation of Israel. So let's stop and think about, about this. If God told the judges not to permit something, it's something that is offensive to God, right? Right? If God told the judges to get something done, it's something that was right. It's righteousness. And, of course, this then begins to unlock some of the understanding of the law of Moses. This is how you are to judge. This is how you carry forth and administer the laws of God. All right. So, with that as background... The whole subject of the law of Moses is much too bear. Lots and lots and lots of laws, obviously. The whole subject is going to be too big to cover in one sermon. But the principles, I think, are not that hard for us to understand. Exodus chapters 21 through 24 are referred to as the book of the covenant, the heart of the old covenant. Here is how you are to judge. Let's take a quick look at uh, Exodus 23 and verse 1. We go through all of these in class, and it's amazing how much understanding and how much wisdom we, Church of God, 21st century, can derive from Moses if we read these laws and stop and think for a moment, okay, there's something here. What's the teaching here? What is God telling me? Exodus 23 in verse 1. You shall not circulate a false report. Wow, if that isn't relevant. To today, I don't know what is. So much false information goes around, and we ought not to be careless about passing things on. Sometimes church people are careless about it. It says, don't do it. Don't put your hand with the wicked to be an unrighteous w- witness. Don't bear false witness against the wicked. Don't p- pass on gossip. In First Timothy, it's interesting how so many of these laws will lead us from the Old Testament into the New Testament. First Timothy 5 verse 13, keep your place in Exodus 23. We'll come back in just a minute. In First Timothy 5 and verse 13, First Timothy chapter 5 and verse 13. This is uh, Paul talking to Timothy about uh, the widows being enrolled into the number. First Timothy 5, verse 13. And besides, they learn to be idle, wandering about from house to house, and not only idle, but also gossips and busybodies, saying things which they ought not. You know, we're a spiritual nation, but perhaps the church isn't always quite as spiritual as it ought to be, and Paul saw a problem there. Anyway, there we get a reflection of something that is clearly enunciated in the law of Moses. Be careful about gossip. Be careful about passing on information. Exodus 23, verse 8. Here's another one that has a a clear application for us today. Exodus 23, verse 8. You shall take no bribe, for a bribe blinds the discerning and perverts the words of the righteous. I love to go over the news in the morning. I pull out my cell phone. I've recently gone high tech and bit the bullet and bought a newer cell phone and I get my news from all different sources and the news is depressing and there was something I was even reading this morning I forget what it was yet another one of the nations where somebody has been accused of taking bribes I think it was one of the European nations I don't think it was Latin America Uh, lots of allegations of bribery from government officials. Take no bribe. A bribe blinds the discerning and perverts the words of the righteous. Now, most of us are not deciding on multi-million dollar, you know, construction projects. Most of us are not in a position, even if we wish to, where we could take a giant bribe of, you know, they talk about huge numbers of of money. One million dollars somebody took as a bribe for awarding this project to this particular company. Don't take a bribe. However, Sometimes most of us run into someone who might want to curry favor with us uh, and uh, flatter. Have You ever had anybody flatter you to try to get their way or offer a big gift? Ministers in the church are cautioned not to take big gifts from people. As an intention is not always a bad thing behind that. But from time to time, there is a, an implicit danger there. Somebody gives you a big gift, and then they come back to you a year or two or five years later and say, look, I did a favor for you, now you've got to do a favor for me. So the judges were told, don't do that. There's obviously uh, a lesson there for us. And in verse 9, Exodus 23, verse 9. Also, God says through Moses, don't oppress a stranger. Somebody who comes in from outside, this would be from someone from another nation, a different tribe. You know the heart of a stranger because you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I love the way it words it there. You Israelites, you know what this feels like. You know what this feels like. So you've got somebody who comes in from outside, treat them well. In that ancient society, there weren't a lot of legal protections for somebody who didn't belong nationally, tribally to that nation. So watch out for the strangers, the strangers and the foreigners look out for them. Now, I want to get a little bit technical at this point and give you a couple of words that are sometimes applied to the different kinds of laws of Moses, where the law says, do this or simply don't do this. That's referred to as an apoditic law. How do you spell that? Okay, <laughs> A-P-O-D-I-C-T-I-C. A-P-O-D-I-C-T-I-C. An apoditic law. I think that's the correct pronunciation. In other words, an apoditic law is simply do this or don't do this. It doesn't have a penalty attached to it. The other kind of law that we often read in the Law of Moses, and elsewhere for that matter, is referred to as a casuistic law. C-A-S-U-I-S-T-I-C. A casuistic law. And the casuistic law has a penalty attached to it. If this happens... Then, carry out this penalty. Don't let this happen in the, in the community. And some of the penalties, of course, as I mentioned before, can even go as high as capital punishment. There were some sins forbidden in the law of Moses that, for which the judges were instructed to carry out capital punishment. In some cases, corporal punishments are mentioned in the Bible, although these apparently were substituted by fines, uh, at least in the Jewish tradition. There were other occasions where there was a system of fines for having certain things done. If it does happen, Then do this, this, and this. Now, again, some of the carrying out of penalties in our society is supposed to be carried out by our legal system. Sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't. I've worked as a bilingual interpreter in in the courts, and and you you get an insight into how some of these things work. But let's go back to the book of Exodus here. Exodus 21, verse 17. There are lots of examples that we could take a look at. Exodus 21, and verse 17... Exodus 21 and verse 17. Now, here we read along, we look at it, we think, surely nobody in the church would do a thing like this. But nevertheless, there is a lesson here for us. He who curses his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. No cursing father or mother relates directly to the fifth commandment. It's a no-brainer, isn't it? And the flip side of this, of course, is that we are to honor our parents, treat them with respect. Sadly, there are people in this country and elsewhere who do this. They curse their own parents. Very seriously, death penalty on it. Death penalty on that. Exodus 22, verses 14 and 15. Exodus 22, verses 14 and 15. If a man borrows anything from his neighbor and it becomes injured or dies, the owner of it not being being with it, he shall surely make it good. Now, this has within the purview some kind of of animal, domestic animal, farm animal. Something happens to it. Make it good. You're responsible. You borrowed it. But if its owner was with it, he shall not make it good. If it was hired, it came for its hire. The owner had it under his control. But the lesson here for us, obviously, is care for the property of other people. Have you ever had anyone take, borrow something from you and they return it to you in bad condition? That's happened to me. I can remember an instance where somebody borrowed my car for a length of time, and I, you know, I lent it to this man. It, was, it had a tank full of gas, and I got it back, and it was running on vapors, and I lent it clean, and when I got it back, it was filthy, and this was a friend of mine, and I thought, all right, I'm not interested in a fight here, but I was a bit disappointed. You know, obviously, there's a Christian principle here for us. We are to care for the property of other people. I think we understand that. Exodus 22, verse 21, Exodus 22, verse 21. We are in the heart of the law of Moses here, in these chapters. Exodus 22, verse 21. You shall neither mistreat a stranger nor oppress him, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. You know how this feels, is the thought here. Look after them. They're vulnerable. They're vulnerable. Verse 22. You shall not afflict a widow or a fatherless child, Now again, this is something that the church tries to do. We have widows in the church and we try to look after them. Uh, We should do that individually as we are able, watch out for them. It's a responsibility that is individual. It's a responsibility that applies to the church. It's also a responsibility that should be there at national level, although you and I have very little control over that. Verse 23. If they afflict, if you afflict them in any way, And they cry at all to me, I will surely hear their cry. That's a living law, brethren. That is a living law. God hears the cries of the widows. Don't mistreat them. Watch out for them. And within the household of God, of course, this is a very important principle. Verse 24, my wrath will become hot, and I will kill you with the sword. See, this one isn't dependent on action of the judges. This is God himself saying, I will do this to you, presumably in conquest, your wives shall be widowed and widows and your children will be fatherless. Now, James 1 and verse 27, of course, you think of the New Testament principle. It's amazing how many of these do find a reflex in the New Testament. James 1, verse 27. We recognize, we know this scripture, pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble, and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. Through the Bible, we find these three groups of people, the strangers, the orphans, and the widows, and God tells his people in New Testament times and in Old Testament times, watch out for these people, be concerned for them. And I think in in the church, we, we do. We are concerned for those who are in those categories. There is, incidentally, a flip side to that. And perhaps some of you have had this same flip side apply in your life. I have. I can remember a number of years ago when I was going through a very, very difficult time and I was actually struggling for employment at the time. I was living in Dallas at the time and and, and things just hadn't really gone well for me at that point and just struggling, you know, and... uh, so, some, I think, I, we understand this. Uh, you ask the brethren to pray about it, but in particular, remember what it says, I will hear the prayer of the widow. Ask some of the widows in the, in the congregation to pray about it. Ask them to pray for you because God says, yes, I listen to them. They were vulnerable back then. It was a different kind of arrangement, of course. Different, uh, l- less governmental protections in one sense. But nevertheless, there is something, of course, to be learned from that Law concerning widows and orphans and strangers. Casuistic laws and a system of punishments, capital punishment, fines. It's interesting, by the way, I'll digress here just briefly. When you look at all those laws of Moses and the penalties that could be put in place under the law of Moses, there's something that is conspicuous by its absence. You know what it is? No incarceration. They didn't put people in the slammer, <laughs> in the prisons. They, uh, there was uh, a system of indentured servitude, but there was no incarceration. Nobody was imprisoned the way we do with people in our modern society. not there in the law of Moses. All right, anyway... Um, so we see all of these penalties, and we see under these casuistic laws that sometimes the judges were required to carry out an even capital punishment. Somebody could lose their life under the law of Moses. In the church today, of course, things are very, very different, and from time to time the ministry does have to become involved in disputes among brethren. Uh, it's not easy to do, by the way, but these things come up. And sometimes they have to adjudicate those things. And from time to time, there may even be a problem in the church, and pastors have to do occasionally what no pastor enjoys doing, telling someone that they are not free to attend services, uh, sometimes for some length of time. But the point I'm making here, of course, is that the church does not function in the same way that a physical nation functions. There are levels of responsibility, the individual level, There are things that we may put in place in our lives as a result of reading all of the laws in the Bible. Uh, The New Testament is a book of law as well, by the way. but That's a different subject. The New Testament has lots of do's and don'ts. But the law of Moses has lots of do's and don'ts. So individually... Members of the church, male, female, ordained, not ordained, can read these laws and say, "Okay, this is telling me something. It tells me something about the widows and about the orphans and about looking out for them. The church has a level of responsibility as well with regard to those who are part of the household of God. And there are some other laws that will then apply to the level of government. And we understand God will hold responsible the governments of this world some of these laws that he put in place that have not been followed properly. Um, Exodus 22. Exodus 22. A couple more examples. Exodus 22, verses 26 and 27. Here's another one that we look at and we say, okay, what does this mean for me? Exodus 22 and verse 26. If you ever take your neighbor's garment as a pledge, return it to him before the sun goes down. If you've ever been in the Middle East, you know it can get very, very cold at night. Really cold, right? (laughs) Um, Verse uh, 27, this is his only covering. It is his garment for his skin. What will he sleep in? And it, it, it will be that when he cries to me, I will hear, for I am gracious. Who says the law of Moses is harsh and tough? No, sometimes the law of Moses enjoins mercy. Watch out for people. So, okay, where's where's the application? It has an application for us as well. And, of course, it places on us a certain measure of judgment. Sometimes we may have to make a judgment, even individually. You owe me money. I demand the money. You told me you'd pay within a year, and you haven't repaid it. I'm sorry, you know, I really want to repay you, and I want to get this done, but it's been tough times, and it's tough times for my family, and, we, you know, we're really struggling. Please allow me a little bit of leeway here, and I'll do my best over the next year or so to repay you. No, tough luck. You owe me, but, you owe me money, friend. <laughs> and, the only, well, the only thing I've got is my pickup truck, but please don't take the oh, Okay, I'll take a pickup truck from you. If you take my pickup truck, I can't do my work, and I can't feed my family. See, it's an application, isn't it? Tough luck, buddy. You owe me and I'm coming for that pickup truck of yours. Now, hopefully none of us would do a thing like that. But the point here being that there are times to extend a little bit of mercy, to listen to people's situation. Okay, the letter of the written monetary contract may say you owe owe some money, but there may be an occasion. Again, there's a judgment here, of course, but there may be an occasion to say, okay, you know, you're my friend you're my brother. I'm not going to take your pickup truck from your or your land for that matter it may whatever the case may be verse 28 same chapter exodus 22 verse 28 exodus 22 verse 28 you shall not revile god nor curse a ruler of your people we live in a culture that has torn down respect for God and torn down respect for rulers. No cursing God, nor, no cursing the rulers. You may remember this actually came up in the New Testament. Remember, in Acts chapter 23, here's the reference. Acts 23, and verse 5, the Apostle Paul, they struck him on the cheek. Whack, must have hurt. And he turned around and uh, he really said something pretty direct to the high priest without realizing it was the high priest. Acts 23 and verse 4. Those who stood by said, Do you revile God's high priest? Then Paul said, I didn't know, brethren, that he was the high priest. It is written, you shall not speak evil of the ruler of your people. And he's quoting straight out of that law in the book of Exodus. Isn't that interesting? Did the Apostle Paul here re- recognize the uh, sacredness of the law of Moses? He certainly did. <clears throat> there are some things that we can put in place. There are some things that we can do. The holy days are a very obvious example. Now, There are those who say, well, the holy days were... Uh, intrinsically tied together with the animal sacrifices and there are no animal sacrifices anymore. So therefore, what are you doing keeping the Holy Days? Well, of course, we read the New Testament and we see that the New Testament church kept the Holy Days, but the assumption is not correct. The Holy Days, you don't have to be offering animal sacrifices to keep the Feast of Trumpets or the Day of Atonement or any of the Holy Days. Um, so these come down to the New Testament church. Tithing, the method for financing the work of the church previously given to the Levitical priesthood, but we in the church, the church is referred to as a priesthood, a priesthood, and therefore we tithe so that God's work can be done. The jubilee year, here's an example of one of the laws that we cannot enact, and I'm not going to turn there. The the reference is Leviticus chapter 25. Leviticus 25, where a jubilee was commanded for Israel. You get to year 50, and you release all the debts, all of them. And what's more, the land goes back to the original owners. Why? Because God didn't want these extremes, these tensions building up within the nation in which the rich got rich and the poor got poorer. Sometimes people will say, well, money begets money. There's a lot of truth to that. Uh, and sometimes people who are born, you know, without privilege struggle all the way through life. And if you stop and think about it for a moment, uh, what has happened in human history when you look at some of the terrible, terrible conflicts that have taken place, especially in the 20th century, you can trace many of them back to the fact that these economic tensions built up between World War I and World War II. Think about that for a moment. If that um, jubilee year law had been enacted, would all those people have died? In the 1940s? It's a what-if question. Anyway, the point here being that this is something that's at the level of the government. This is not something the church can enact. In Exodus 22 and verse 20, Exodus 22 and verse 20, "...he who sacrifices to any god except to the Lord only, he shall be utterly destroyed." He's under the herem, the H-E-R-E-M, the herem, the ban, the religious ban. This is what they were supposed to do. What was the penalty for apostasy? The penalty for apostasy was the death penalty. Now, this is December 5th. I don't recommend going around to your neighbors and breaking into their hope. No, no, you get the point. All right. But it really was. I mean, the the death penalty was enjoined in Deuteronomy chapter 13. There was a death penalty for uh, religious apostasy. I heard many years ago of a man in the church who was grappling with this question. And he said, you know, I want to figure out which of the laws of Moses are required of me and which ones are not required of me. And this man, I don't know who it was, but this man suggested going through all of the laws of Moses with two colored pens or, I don't know, sharpies or whatever and marking the ones that are in effect with one color, maybe with red, and the ones that are not in effect with another color, maybe blue or maybe the reverse. Uh, And, you know, when you really read some of these laws, you realize it's not quite that simple because some of these laws have a kind of an echo effect. Some of the laws have an echo effect. Here's an example, Exodus 21. Exodus 21. The laws are expressed in language that would have made sense for Israel in the 15th century BC and when they came into the land. The direct application, we have to think about it a little bit. We have to use our imaginations. Exodus 21, verse 28. Exodus 21, verse 28. If an ox gores a man or a woman to death, then the ox shall surely be stoned, and its flesh shall not be eaten. But the owner of the ox shall be acquitted. But if the ox tended to thrust with its horn in times past, and it has been made known to its owner and has not kept it confined so that it's killed a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned and its owner also shall be put to death. The owner had a number of DUIs. OK, you know, most of us don't own oxen. Verse 30, if there is imposed on him a sum of money, then he shall pay to redeem his life, whatever is imposed on him, whether it is gourd a son or gourd a daughter, according to this judgment, it shall be done to him. Uh, The oxen, most of us don't own oxen, maybe some do, I don't know, but most of us drive a vehicle an automobile. Some of us uh, are owners, perhaps, of factories with industrial machinery. And, of course, the principle here is keep your motorized vehicle in good condition so that you don't run the risk of killing or maiming anyone else. Speaking of oxen, Paul quotes this in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, so we can derive a lot from all of these laws. In 1 Corinthians 9, beginning in verse uh, 7. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 7. Another quote from the Apostle Paul out of the Mosaic Law. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 7. Paul here is pointing up the fact that those who, live off the, who, who give the gospel had the right to live off the gospel. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 7. Whoever goes toward his own expense, who plants a vineyard and does not eat of its fruit, who tends a flock and does not drink of the milk of the flock, do I say these things just as a man? Doesn't the law say the same thing? And he goes back to the law of Moses. For it is written in the law of Moses, and he also talks about oxen. You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Is God concerned only about oxen? Well, no, he's concerned about human beings as well. And Paul drew a very important principle out of this. And that, of course, that is italicized in my Bible. It's from Deuteronomy 25, verse 4. Does he say it altogether for our sakes? Verse 10, for our sakes, no doubt. This is written that he who plows should plow in hope. And he who threshes in hope should be partaker of his hope. So there are many, many of these intertextual connections, and there are many, many points where we can read the law of Moses and make it part of our own personal Bible study and say, okay, there's something here for me. I don't live in that kind of a society. The culture has changed. The history has changed. You know, the the governmental structure has changed. But there is something here that we can all learn. Now, maybe some of you have heard this. I've heard this more than once. I won't ask for a show of hands. Some of you have been around the church for a while, but I've heard this, this criticism of our teaching in God's church. You folks in the church of God, you pick and choose. I won't ask for a show of hands how many have heard that. You pick and choose. You pick the bits that you like, and you reject the bits that you don't like. Is that the truth? The answer is, in fact, no. (laughs) We don't pick and choose. We regard it all as holy. It all comes from the mind of God, after all. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. We don't pick and choose. And I want to quote one of my teachers from many, many years ago, uh, because... um, the way he explained this has stuck with me, and I actually quote him in the classroom as well. Many of you will remember uh, this name, a minister died a number of years ago now, uh, Herman L. Hay, Dr. Herman Hay. But one of the things that he taught on this, which has stuck with me, and I thought it was very well put, I think I can quote it verbatim, word for word. He said, we look at it all according to its intent and purpose. And I've thought about that very often. We look at it all according to its intent and purpose. What was its intent? What was its purpose? And then I don't remember what followed after that. That first part is verbatim from Dr. Hay. But we apply where we're able to apply. We look at it all according to its intent and purpose. The Levitical laws, the Levitical laws, there's no functioning Levitical priesthood in the church today. So those Levitical laws don't have a direct application, but it's surprising how much we can even learn if we go back to the book of Leviticus. There's a cultural aspect, the marriage laws, the marriage laws. We Sometimes we cover these in class, and some of the young ladies, you know, look a little bit perplexed about the marriage laws, but a woman would have had a very different set of concerns back then in a patriarchal society, heavily patriarchal, uh, a woman back then was concerned about where was she going to be who under whose roof would she live she had essentially two options either under the roof of her father or under the roof of her husband or perhaps her older older brother uh, she didn't have the option of getting a job and buying her own house and having her own car and maybe choosing not to become married as some women do in our society So the whole aspect of the marriage laws we have to read through that cultural lens. But um, that said, there is always a lot to be learned. Um, Let's see here. Yeah, One thing that we have inherited in our law code in this country and in other countries as well is a very important distinction and it involves homicide. Homicides take place. People die. But there's a difference, of course, between somebody who, and this happens sadly, they watch someone coming in and out of their home and they decide they've got a grudge against them. And then they take a firearm and they kill that person on a street or whatever. They assassinate that individual. That, of course, is murder. On the other hand, the other kind of homicide that can take place can be accidental. It can take place accord- occasionally with a motor vehicle. It can take place with, uh, the Bible cites the example of the axe, the axe head. Exodus 21, verses 12 through 14, back in that book of the covenant. And it's really, in principle at least, it's a good thing that this distinction between murder and manslaughter <clears throat> has been preserved in our society, Exodus 21, verse 12. Exodus 21, verse 12. He who strikes a man so that he dies shall surely be put to death. The penalty for murder is death. But if he did not lie in wait, but God delivered him into his hand, then I will appoint for you a place where he may flee. This, of course, was the city of refuge. Verse 14. If a man acts with premeditation against his neighbor to kill him with guile, presumptuously, conspiring to do it. You shall take him from my altar that he may die. There is no uh, way for him to, uh, uh, to flee, to escape from the death penalty. We won't turn there, but in Deuteronomy 19, it lists the cities of refuge. When they came into the land, a number of cities were, uh, were named And specified in the land where someone who is guilty of manslaughter and not murder. The distinction is an important one. Unfortunately, in our law courts, sometimes the distinction gets blurred. But that's a different matter. But if you are guilty of manslaughter and not murder, you're still responsible. Because after all, you caused, caused the death of another person in the community. But that individual could flee to the city of refuge. And he can't go out. And you remember what happened. He couldn't go out of the city of refuge, and he's hoping that the high priest is not taking his vitamins. Remember? <laughs> he's stuck there, so you've got an element of uncertainty. You can't get out of a city of refuge because you were guilty of manslaughter, not murder, but manslaughter, and you're stuck there until the high priest dies. So it's actually one of those aspects of the Mosaic law that we brought into our legal code is a very good thing. Now, as we get to wrapping this up, the law of Moses is not all negatives, in fact. The law of Moses includes some very, very important principles. You know the answer to this one, but I'll pose it in the question anyway. Who was it who said, We are to love God with all our heart and our soul and our strength? Answer, Jesus Christ. Yes, that's right. <laughs> but also, answer Moses. Deuteronomy 6, verse 5. Deuteronomy 6, verse 5. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. We hang that on the wall of our bedroom or on the kitchen wall. If that isn't enough to keep us busy for our entire lives, I don't know what is. And it certainly is not a physical law. It's not a carnal law of Moses. I've seen some of these overgeneralizations. No, it came from God, I know, through Moses, but this is the great commandment. These are our marching orders for us, New Testament uh, members of the Church of God. Deuteronomy 6, and it's quoted of course all many places throughout the New Testament. We'll come to one just briefly as we begin to wrap this up. Leviticus 19, verse 18. The two biggies Here's the second one. Leviticus 19, verse 18. Leviticus 19, verse 18. says, Take no vengeance, nor bear any grudge against the children of your people. Far too easy to do, isn't it? But you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Isn't that a remarkable statement? Love your neighbor as yourself. And if we take those two great commandments... And realize that really everything that God requires of us is encapsulated in those two great commandments. Love God with all your heart and your soul and your mind, with everything in you. And love your neighbor as yourself. And we've got a program, we've got a, 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 a commission, if you will, individually and collectively, that carries us all the way through life, and that we can think about, meditate on, and sometimes ask, stop and ask ourselves, you know. <laughs> In what way am I not completely fulfilling this? Because I don't know that any of us completely fulfill it. But the point here is, who said to love our neighbor as ourselves? Answer, Moses. Now, of course, it is quoted all the way through the New Testament many, many times. And yes, I know, Jesus pre-existed, And so it was Jesus and God the Father who gave it to Moses. So uh, we all understand that. But it was articulated by Moses. Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12, as we begin to wrap this up now. Mark 12. Verses 28 through 34. One of the scribes came, and having heard them reasoning together, perceiving that he, Jesus, had answered them well, he asked him, Which is the first commandment of all? Tell me what's the really, really important thing in the law. I want to know. Good question. Jesus answered him, the first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. So much for us to chew on there and think about. Jesus tells us, this is for you, if you're really a follower of Jesus. Verse 31. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. The beauty of these two great commandments. Just really uh, tremendous the way these things are expressed. The scribe said to him, Well said, teacher. Wasn't that nice? He gave Jesus an A on his uh, his term paper. Well said, teacher, you've spoken the truth. There is one God and there is no other but he. And to love him with all the heart, with all the understanding, and with all the soul, and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Yes, absolutely right. Jesus saw that he answered wisely and he said to him, You're not far from the kingdom of God. You're not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared question him, because you're not far from the kingdom of God if you keep those two great commandments. Um, Wonderful encapsulation of God's way of life for us. The law of Moses is an extensive body of laws. It includes the great commandments. It includes all kinds of things that apply to a community. But we can read them. We should. We can read them and study them and think about them and say, okay, this still says something for me. It says something for me. Let's finish it off with Malachi chapter 4 and verse 4. Right at the end of the Old Testament, the last of the prophets, chronologically, Malachi is a bit of a mystery. There are some who say "Not, it's a pseudonym that he didn't actually exist I don't believe that's true he may not be mentioned in any other books except the book named for him but nevertheless he's got a very important comment here right at the end of the book named for him the prophet Malachi Malachi 4 verse 4 remember the law of Moses my servant which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel with the statutes and judgments it's good advice from Malachi and it's good advice for us as well